remembered it later, uh, didn't have it available at the time of the writing. Those are a couple answers. Anybody want a pen, by the way? I'll throw it at you. Dave, do you need one? Yeah. Here, it comes sliding down the table. Oh. Send one. There's one other one if somebody needs one. All right. And I have a handful if you want me to throw that. Just kidding. Um, what would be another reason why it wasn't included in the earliest and most reliable, but we would have it now? Because it kind of goes along the same line, Vern, um, of what you're thinking there. But what's another reason that's close, but similar? The earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have this, but we do. I'm looking for an answer. Okay. Well, I think the essence of it is, is, is when the NIV would say the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have it. That's true. But somehow it was added in. And it, meant, it would mean it was added in at a later time, whether it wasn't available or not. But somebody had the idea, this is an important story. And there are some, this isn't the only snippet in the New Testament where this occurs. The earliest and most reliable don't have this. But, and, and when that happens, the later translations than the King James Version will put, not a disclaimer, but they'll just put a note. Mm -hmm. Hey, by the way, the earliest and most reliable don't have it. However, the later ones do. Because at some point, I would agree with you, Vern, they thought it was a story worth mentioning. But some would say, well, it's not the earliest. It may not have been the original author that added this. It might have been somebody else in antiquity when I say antiquity, we're still in the first century AD. It's not like it's that old, right? But anybody want to add to what I just said? Subtract from it. <laughs> uh, and so last week I told you that a lot of our studies here in 99 Days with Jesus have focused on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Synoptic because a lot of them have a similar a lot of the similar stories. Some of them are repeated in John, but not all. And John has a different perspective. And, and so this week, I specifically wanted to focus on the Gospel of John. And, and so then our writings take off from there. I decided to title this topic this morning, The Crazy Claims of Jesus. Not because they're crazy to us. And I thought about it this week, we have the very strong privilege with the whole word, word of God coming to us. We can look at scripture in rear view. Meaning they were living it out while it happened. They were having these narratives unfold. It'd be, it'd be like um, they were part of the chosen <laughs> before it was written down. And so what they had were these snapshots, these events, these moments, these sayings, these collections of um, experiences and encounters with Jesus. We get it put together not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, but we get the whole counsel of the Word of God. We can look at it in rear view. And if you are like me and you grew up either in a church or Sunday school, or you went to vacation Bible school, at some point along the way, you were taught. And as you taught, you absorbed the teachings of Scripture, the truths of Scripture. But for them, if they were just experiencing Jesus for the first time, living it out, what Jesus said and some of the things he said and did would have seemed crazy, perhaps. So we're going to look at that, because in our readings this week, 
Well, one of the crazy claims of Jesus, just in our readings, um, Matthew chapter, or Matthew, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, and Jesus repeats this in chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus says this. He says, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of light. I mean, what would we do if we, we didn't know Brad, but Brad came into the room, he came bursting into the room, and he came up to the front of the class, he said, hey guys, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> I mean, we might start blowing, you know. <laughs> no, um, but, but you think about, you know, in the beginning, what did God say? The first very spoken words of God in Genesis 1, let there be light. And then in John chapter 1, we read, um, the true light, John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John chapter 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I mean, it, later on he's going to tell his disciples, or we could also look at it as earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount. You're the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden, that we are supposed to be light to the world, in the world. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And in our world today, we might say, well, what do you mean, Jesus? Well, are you a flashlight? <laughs> Whoever follows me will never walk. But Jesus is speaking in metaphors. He's speaking in word pictures that have... Uh, tremendous meaning. And so maybe to us that's not so crazy of a statement. I'm the light of the world. But if somebody came into your room, into your workplace, your classroom, and said, I'm the light of the world, <laughs> you might think if they're a male that they're a chauvinist. If they were somebody else, they might be trying to get attention. Look at me. But what did he mean when he said he's the light of the world? What does he mean? Yeah, what, is he, what oh. do you think Jesus He's meant? He's the hope that we have. Yeah. He's the hope that he has? That we have. That we have, yeah. yeah. Light dispels darkness. It dispels darkness. It illuminates the truth. It's, we're living in a state of sin. He came to save us from ourselves. So for anybody yes, else... To me, in essence. Anybody out there who feels like we are living in a dark world... Mm -hmm. What would that mean if they hear that Jesus is the light of the world? I heard somebody say one time that there's no such thing as darkness, just the absence of light. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The world is in darkness. And I've also heard that you can't have darkness without light. You'd have no contrast. How would you know what light was without darkness and how what darkness was without light? You can look at a politician. <laughs> I almost ch choked on my rock star there. <laughs> Next crazy statement. I'm just only going visit mainly snapshots from our reading. John 8, verse 16b. Jesus says, I stand with the Father who sent me. Now you'd have to read the context to understand it more fully. But again, I use that analogy. If somebody walked in the room and said, I stand with the Father. Now that, that might sound good, like... They're in agreement with the Father. But what if Jesus meant more than that? 
What if it was a bigger personified meaning because he came from God? And it's more than just he's in agreement with the Father. Yeah. The context is he's talking about judging. So if he's standing with the Father and the Father's judging, then that's almost like authority. Yeah. Yeah. No, so 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 these aren't these would have been crazy statements compared to you know what somebody else might oh I stand with my father. <laughs> my dad and I agree. Well it's it's bigger than that because his father He's claiming God to be his father um, in the whole context. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 20. Again, the latter half of the verse. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I mean, what's fun about all this is that I work alongside my dad, Pastor Rod. And uh, these are common statements. Oh, if you knew me, you'd know my dad. <laughs> you know my dad, you know me. Well, yes and no. But Jesus... What he's saying has a bigger implication. Yeah. yeah. And so um, some would call that a crazy statement. Next one. John chapter 8, verses 23 through 24. Jesus continued, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would not die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. I mean, again, a man walks into the room and he says this. Jesus walks into the room and he says this. And there was this conflict among the uh, religious leaders. A lot of them called him crazy. Some said, you are possessed by a demon. You are, basically, you're a madman. You're out of your mind. You talk like a crazy person. But Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only begotten Son of God, not just a Son of God, not an everyday citizen who is one of many sons of God because they've chosen. He's the one and only begotten Son of God. Look at um, John chapter 8, verses 27 through 28. I kind of cross-reference with that previous passage. They did not understand that he was telling them about his Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. Again, there's a lot of implications in that statement. It'd be a sermon on its own. But in terms of crazy statements of Jesus... Jesus is communicating who he is, where he came from, who his father is, and what he's about. What he's about saying, what he's about doing. And he's saying, hey, I come from the father, and this comes from the father. It's interesting, when you have lifted up the son of man, and there's going to be an analogy later on as well, where when I'm high and lifted up and in Israel... I can't remember the story exactly verbatim, but they, uh, there was a staff with the image of a snake and people were to look at it, look on it to be healed um, because God had cursed them with some type of a plague because of their disobedience. But when they looked upon that, that stake, um, kind of a pole with a snake on it, there, there was a, a way of uh, being delivered or redeemed. And this image of the Son of Man being lifted up, it's a reference to the cross. He said it, wasn't it? Pardon? He said that 
took the, uh, the brazen serpent in the second kings. I was thinking of something more in the Exodus chapters, but... That's where it showed up first. Okay. Asa. I think it was Asa. It was either Asa or... Yeah, I didn't, and I, I should have like embedded this in my notes. It's kind of like one of those side comments. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Now, this was a direct insult. <laughs> these were the Jews, and these were religious leaders, and they followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed in the God of the Torah. First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And he comes to them and says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I come, came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. The whole issue is that they did not accept him, they rejected him. And they did not understand him. They, they didn't understand who he was, his identity, the Son of God and the Messiah, the Christ. And those are two things, and they're also the same thing in Jesus. He's the fulfillment. But they did not see that. John chapter 8, 51, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, that sounds like a really good <coughs> promise. That'd be great. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's a bold prediction. But can you see how to them it would sound like a crazy saying of Jesus? A lot of these things just infuriated them. To the point that they, many times, had in mind to stone him, plotted to kill him. All of these things were what Jesus said and the things he did. In their hearts, their hearts became hardened and they, they basically were calculating the road to the cross. How can we get Jesus to the cross? Something here that kind of stood out to me, Jim, if I could. Yeah. Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, you, you, I, I don't know that we would have any way of knowing for sure here, but you, you know, like he, I'm wondering if they're saying that he veiled himself and kind of just, you know, all of a sudden wasn't there anymore. Or, or I'm just trying to picture Jesus, you know, kind of like going, you know, I don't think he went like bush to bush. And, that is a really cool observation, and I'm glad you made it because it's a good question, first of all. But it, it allows us to try to picture and put ourselves there. So if we were to try to envision Jerusalem and then try to envision the temple and the temple courts, and, and we know that there were money changers or people you know, selling ox and lamb and doves and pigeons and whatever. You know, was it a busy place? Was it not so busy? Jesus is, where's he at more specifically? Was he in the synagogue area? Uh, was there a big crowd? Was there a little crowd? Were there lots yeah. of obstacles that he could hide behind? Or not? You, know, you try to picture yourself in first century Jerusalem. And then it says, Jesus hid himself. I, I was, the first thing that came to mind was King Saul when he hid himself among the baggage. When they're going to bring him out to coordinate him as king. And he, the guy was chicken. Um, but no, that's not. Jesus is not the same as Saul hiding among the back. He hid himself. And you're right. Did he cloak himself? What do you think, Becky? Well, there's also the account when they tried to push him off a cliff yeah. in Nazareth. I he turned around and just went straight yeah, through them. Yeah, just said, he, it's like they were 
I'm not sure if they just didn't see him or he just stared them all down or right. if he hid himself like this. Yeah, I always wondered about that. This whole thing resonates the power of God. And so it, this, it doesn't say he got lost in the crowd. <laughs> it's fun to watch on TV. Ever watch one of those, uh, a show where there's a chase scene and they get lost in a shopping mall because there's a crowd of people or on a subway station or the sidewalks of New York. And Yeah. Until it was his time and until things fell into God's plan, nothing was going to happen to Jesus outside of what God would allow. And he slipped through the crowds. They picked up stones and they're they're standing there holding their rocks. <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a little humor to this when we start stop to dwell on it. <clears throat> but why did they do that? John 8, 58. Crazy sayings of Jesus. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Why, why the controversy with that? What's the big deal if Jesus says, before Abraham I was born, I am? Well, you took it literally. It's like, well, you're a couple hundred years off here. You're... Right. First of all, he's saying he's pre-existing Abraham. Second of all, he's using two words that had significant meaning to them. Are you saying that you're older than Abraham? They even ask him that right there. <laughs> but... The words I am had a significance in um, the Jewish religious culture. Why? Who shall I say? Yeah. <coughs> Exodus chapter 3, I believe it's verse 4. But in Exodus 3, God calls Moses to go to his people. Moses tries to back out of it. Finally, he says, okay, if I go to the Israelites, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell him I am has sent me to you. And so in the Gospel of John, this doesn't count as one, but there are actually, yeah, Exodus 3, excuse me, 13 and 14. Exodus 3, 14. I, I knew there was a four there. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so, in the Gospel of John, there are seven specific I am statements. Jesus says, I am. The first one, John 10, 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. John 10, verses 11 and 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And in looking at this, is Jesus talking literal or figurative? Is it symbolic and or is it representative? Or is he saying, I'm a, I'm a piece of bread. <laughs> I'm a light. I'm a gate. No, he, it, it, he's using word pictures. Metaphor. But it had meaning. And it had deep meaning. And it had personal meaning. And Jesus expounds on that meaning. And there's a why behind why he says 
these things. But when he said, I am, it's like a Doberman pincher when the ears prick up. And then you're going to be set to kill. Because you're starting to tread on what they thought was holy ground. They did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. And that's one of the... Well, you go back to verse 53 there and it says, who do you think you are? It's almost sarcastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. He also said, uh, I am who I claim to be. And I think that's in the capital too. Liar, lunatic, or king? Liar, lunatic, or savior? Liar, lunatic, or son of God? You know, was it that Jesus was inviting controversy or was it Jesus was stating a, a fact, a simple truth? Was Jesus greater than Abraham? Yes. Did the religious leaders, the Jewish people understand it? No. And so we get to John chapter 10, verse 30, and Jesus makes another crazy statement. He says this, I and the Father are one. And I want us to spend a little time on this because when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, the next words after that was in verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. <laughs> I mean, they were out to get him. And so what is Jesus saying here when he says, I and the Father are one? Is he saying, I and the Father are one and the same person? Yeah, absolutely. And and the everlasting Father. Yeah, it's pretty declarative statement. I and the Father are one. Could mean united, could be... It's one purpose, one Yeah. Okay, and is saying one purpose. I and the Father are one in purpose. Mm -hmm. One in mind. Mm -hmm. I think I reflect back on Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writes to us, you should be one in spirit and one in purpose. A, a unity, a dynamic unity. But I'm going to tell you, this is one of the key verses uh, that many have built the doctrine of the Trinity on. I and the Father are one. Here's another one that is used. Um, it was not in our reading. It's fast forward ahead. Where Jesus answers Philip, he says, "If you uh, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I'm just going to, we're going to get back to John 10, but I'm going to ask you right here. Is Jesus in this passage saying, I am the Father? Not exactly. <clears throat> Not exactly. But it, it does say all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Exactly. So Colossians chapter 2.9. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is under the headship of the Father. So there's... So you're saying this Jesus is yeah. the headship of the Father. Yeah, so as I said, it's deeper than we can understand it. But, but, but I'll, I'm, I'm going to, if we run out of time, we'll come back and, and carry this. I won't like discontinue the lesson, I, I don't think. But I and the Father are one, and then if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A lot of times these verses are pulled, I don't want to say out of context, but they're pulled apart as just these standalone statements. To say Jesus is God. In a way that is saying Jesus is the Father. 
And I'm going to argue that, let's look at the context of John chapter 14, verse 9. And when we look at the context, I'm going to, I'll tell you right now, there's a greater context. And we could spend a long time studying this. You could spend a long time studying this on your own. But I'm going to use this analogy. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let's say I came into the room and I held up a flashcard and it's a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Everybody take a look. This is Abraham Lincoln. And put it away. And I say, how many of you have seen Abraham Lincoln? We weren't there in the 1800s. But we saw his picture. And I want you to hold that thought. Look at John chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. Jesus says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And a lot of times when I read scripture like this, I'm thinking to myself, is this literal or is it figurative? Is it literal or is it representative? Is it literal or is it symbolic? Is it literal or is it Jesus implying don't you believe that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, the words I say to you are not just my own, because there's a reason he said that first statement. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now, how many of you, if you're a, a, a Christian, or you're a son or daughter of God, a child of God, believe that the Holy Spirit is living in you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Bible teaches that. And so we come by faith to believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us who comes from the Father. But Jesus is saying, the words I say to you are not just my own, it's the Father living in me. Is Jesus saying he is the Father? No. He's saying the Father lives in him. What does that mean? Keep going. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He repeats what he says in verse 10. Or at least, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth that anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. And then what does he say next? Because I am going to the Father. Wait. If he's the Father, what do you mean he's going to the Father? Well, it's, he's not the Father. He's the Son. And the Father lives in him just like the Holy Spirit dwells in us in my thinking. It's, it's this, it's like a symbiotic relationship, but one of closeness. So they're so tight-knit. Inseparable, dynamic unity. And yet there's a distinction. Father sends the Son. And I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. He will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may be, bring glory to the Father. There's the Son and the glory of the Father. But it's passages like these. I, I, when we started the study and we said, if somebody were to come to Christ, become a Christian, where would you tell them to start in reading the Bible? A lot of people say the Gospel of John. On one hand, I think that's an excellent suggestion. And on the other hand, I might say what we said earlier. Why would you do that? Because the Gospel of John is a great book to go through in a deep teaching discipleship method. But left on your own to just, hey, read this. The Holy Spirit can illuminate. I believe he does, and he will. It also takes sitting down to understand it, to study it. It's not just a, a simple read. 
in my mind. Realize there's a book then. Yeah, you can simply read it, and God will speak through it. And it's a great book to start. But it's also one of the deeper, it's the deepest theological book of all the Gospels, I believe. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things in there that are seedy and heavy and wordy, and I just lost my screen. Not that, okay. Um, do you guys want to stop here for a second? The key I want to point out is he is going to the Father and he brings glory to the Father. So in this passage, did Jesus claim to be God? In this passage, did he claim to be God? In this passage? Yeah. Where? He claims more to serve God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, okay. Where is he said, I, I always do what pleases him. Yeah. So it's still separate. So. so, let me kind of rephrase this. In the Gospels, did Jesus specifically claim to be God? Did he say, I am God? He's not what he said when he, when he said, I am. Okay, well, that's a question. And it's an, I'll tell you what, that is a big argument of debate. And here's what I'm going to assert. I'm going to assert that Jesus never claimed to be God. But do the Gospels say that Jesus is God? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really easy. Um, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Did Jesus claim to be God? I'm going to say no. Well, you could argue, well, he said, I am the gate, and I'm the she good shepherd, and I'm, but I'm not, I don't believe in that passage. He was claiming to be, but, but the other, here's the corollary. When, 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 when we ask the question, did Jesus claim to be God? I would throw it back at you. What do you mean by that? Did Jesus claim to be the Father? Never. Did he claim to be the Son of God? Absolutely. He, he claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior. There's a number of names in reference to Jesus. And I'm, I know we could go back to Isaiah. Well, it, it says their everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And, and we could study that. But did Jesus specifically claim to be God? He claimed to be the Son of God. I think what he said, uh, when he made statements like, before Abraham was, I am, Yeah. Uh, it denotes divinity. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and uh, there's no question of that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm looking for an article here that I pulled up, and I want to read it to you because, um, and I invite you to go to your computer and type in, did Jesus ever claim to be God? You can Google that. And because and, I did. And here's what it, it, an article came up. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? The short answer is this is what they're saying. Yes, he did. Through a combination of his words and actions, there are actually numerous references in the Bible of Jesus showing himself to be divine. If you would like to read one example for yourself right now, go to John 8, read the whole chapter. To see and understand it in context. I am the light of the world. And a number of things. Anyone who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God. Has never read the Bible or understood its message. 
Does Jesus have to say it in those exact words, I am God? Think about this. Would anyone really take seriously the words of a man who comes in the desert and say, I am God? People would call him a lunatic. Lunatic. <laughs> then the author of this article says this, Jesus may not have said those exact words, but he showed it and proved it in many ways. But to me, did Jesus ever claim to be God? He never said, I am God. And, and, and he said, I am God's son. I am the son of man. He, he referred to a number of things. But I would also argue, if somebody says, Jesus is God, what do you mean by that? Are you saying he's the father? Because a lot of times when people think of God, they're thinking of their heavenly father. And, and sometimes this issue of the Trinity gets mashed together almost like a, a ball of Play-Doh. You guys play a Play-Doh, and, and you can split it into three parts. Jesus only. You can have three colors, and then you can mash it together and, and still have one ball. I, I kind of quib, you know, I've heard God um, reduced to an apple, boiled down to an egg, mm -hmm. and turned into water, vapor, and, 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 uh, and, a, and an ice cube. And all of these analogies can help us maybe make some type of a sense of this one God. And yet they all fall short of the fullness of who God is. Can't boil them down to an egg. A three-leaf clover. A three-leaf clover. Yeah. But the problem I have here is that a lot of times in the Christian circles, we will use cliches or, or um, religious ease. We'll just say, you know... Um, as I read the article, he goes down, he goes, we all know that only God is to be worshipped. We all know that only God can forgive sins. We all know that on judgment day, God will raise the dead. We all know that miracles can only be done in the name of God. We all know, we all know, we all know. And what it reminds me of was a story I heard long ago of a young man. He was a teenager. Maybe he was a troubled teenager. He was a young man who was hurting. He, he wore ripped jeans over dirty t-shirt and a black leather jacket growing his hair long and one day he was out in his truck and he realized that he heard about a youth group there's this youth group that met at this church and he thought you know what maybe there's an answer there maybe i'm missing something and so he on his own wasn't invited he just went to where he the group was going to be meeting he went inside worship leaders up in the front he's strumming away everybody's singing along he kind of looks around, he kind of gets a seat in the back, not sure really what to do. And now we're going to sing this song. We all know that one. And the guy starts singing away and everybody's singing along. They get done singing the song and the, the leader's, well, now let's sing this song. We all know that one. Only this kid didn't know that one. And so sometimes in our Christian thinking, that, that, that young man, he turned around and he left. Because he didn't know that one. And it was very clear to him right away that he wasn't one of them. He wasn't going to belong. He wasn't going to fit in. They didn't really care. They all knew that one. But not him. He turned around and he never came back. And what I want to argue in, in one of the first snippets is if we're going to say something, if we're going to try to explain something. We all know the Trinity. We all know this. No, not everybody does. 
And with humility, we better be able to sit down and walk people through it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Is Jesus saying, I am the Father? No, he is not. And yet that verse is waved around as a one-sentence cliché. And, and, and so I take a little, you know, you can, you can sense I'm a little, I get a little, there's no question of Jesus' deity, of his divinity, that he's holy man and fully divine. But how do we understand that? What does the scripture say to unpack it? And are any of our conceptions misconceptions? And if we've had misconceptions, how can we explain them clearly? And I'm going to argue that in almost all of these cases, the text is explained by the context. The text is explained by the context. Well, all right. I, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, the, the power is in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Not in the name of God, but in the name of Jesus. Power is in the name of Jesus. And yet God holds power. I mean, there's certainly power in God. In yeah. Godhead, but yet we're to, the power is in Jesus' name. Yeah. I mean, people don't cringe when you say God, but they cringe when you say Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I, I gave you a handout this morning, so is Jesus God? The Bible does say Jesus is God. And so on your handout this morning, it's what's on the screen here. It's simply a little book in the library that's got the, uh, the Greek with the English interpretation. And this is John chapter 1, the first three verses. We'll just look at the first couple. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. I want you to understand, we talked about this in one of the earlier lessons, that the word for God is theos, but there's also a little, I call it a participle. It's all Greek to me. But this word, T-O-B, is ton. In the beginning was the word Logos, and Logos was with, Ton Theos was with the God, and Theos was the Word. This one was in the beginning with the God. Jesus is absolutely referred to as God. The Father is referred to as the God, Ton Theos. That even in John chapter 1, there's a, a distinction between the Father and the Son, when it talks about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. And then we talked about this earlier, um, Colossians 2.9, for in Christ the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. I go back to the picture of Abraham Lincoln. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the Son. But does that mean the Son's the Father? No. The Son's the Son. The Father's the Father. When Jesus was on earth, where was the Father? He's in heaven. When Jesus is praying, who's he praying to? His Father. And when the Father turns back, when he's on the cross. The Father's turned away on the cross. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I mean, there's this, there, there's this, um, I, I was going to use the word pecking order, and then I was going to use the word subjugation. <laughs> but 
here's the Father and here's the Son. God was pleased to have his fullness well in him. Authority structure? Yeah, there's an authority structure. Mm -hmm. You go to Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. There's at least one thing that the Father knows the Son doesn't know. And so when we use bold concepts like the Trinity, we've got to be... How are you going to... How are you going to explain that? How are you going to mash that up, you know? Um, because there's at least one thing Scripture indicates that the Father knows that the Son doesn't, and yet there's a danger in treating everything as one and the same, because the Father has sent the Son. And this, the Son never... I'm just going to argue again. The Son never claimed to be God, but the Jewish religious leaders accused Him of being God. And by the works he did and the things he said, it would certainly seem that way made sense to them. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that's the NIV, and you can slice and dice different translations if you want. But let me go here. I and the Father are one, John 10, verse 30. And let's look real quickly at the context. The, the immediate context is John chapter 10, verse 22 to 39, but the extended context, we could even point back to John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a man born blind at birth, and that created a controversy. But John chapter 10, 22, we could look at uh, the, the context in the rest of chapter 10, where Jesus says, you know, he's the good shepherd, talks about, <coughs> i got this thing going on with that, but, okay. Then, then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What does Jesus mean when he says, if you are the, or what do they mean when they say, if you are the Christ? What are they talking about? Messiah. Yeah. Are you the one sent by God to come and deliver us and redeem us. And are you the, uh, in the line of David, whose throne shall endure, are you that guy? Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. And when I read this again, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus acknowledges his Father, but he knows he's the Son. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. I'm going to argue that Jesus never claimed to be God, but they're accusing him of claiming to be God. And they're looking at his miracles and what he's doing. Jesus' argument is, I come from God. Nobody could do the things I'm doing unless he, he did. And so there, there's this back and forth going on in this picture. But they accuse him of claiming to be God. And Jesus decides to respond this way. Jesus answered them, 
It is not written in, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, small g, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Jesus isn't saying because I said I am God. No, Jesus never said that. Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? I, I did say I was God's son. I did say he's my father. Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father, again. That dynamic unity. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. When we look at this passage, I just want to make some quick observations here. It says, first of all, then, he came, then came the Feast of Dedication. And this is the fourth feast or religious festival that Jesus attends in his gospel ministry. And why is this important? <clears throat> the Feast of Dedication, you won't find it in the Old Testament in the Levitical feasts. What it is, is it's a newer custom. It's a newer tradition that was created in the 2nd century B.C. Because back in Israel's history, in 168 B.C., the Jewish temple was desecrated by the Greek monarch Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Corrupt priests were installed within the temple. Later on in the Maccabean Revolt, the Maccabean Wars, control of the temple was regained, and in 19, or, or, sorry, in six, 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus declared that this dedication should be celebrated every winter on the 25th day of the month of Kislev. And so, commentator notes would say November, December. When I read the 25th day of the winter month, I'm thinking, well, we have the holiday Christmas on the 25th of December. Maybe we should be setting the, celebrating the Feast of Dedication, which basically was a remembrance of clean house, purify the priests, and make sure you've got the right religious leaders, the right priests in place. Not the corrupt ones that were put in there by Antiochus Epiphanes. There's nothing in there about Santa Claus? No. No, not even the ho-ho verse we find in Zechariah. But when you set this in the context, Jesus enters, and you've got the religious leaders, and it's the Feast of Dedication, and who is, who is the high priest? Who is the priest of all priests? It would be Jesus. Jesus. And he's there, and they don't recognize him. There is deep symbolic truth. Who's the true priest? And who are the false priests? Who's the true religious leader? Who's the false one? Who are the real sheep? And he's even going to refer to sheep that are not, I can't remember the exact word, but not of this pastor. Um, he's got other sheep is what he's saying, and he's referring to the Gentiles in that. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Again, the context was he just healed this man who was born blind at birth, and they wanted to kill him because he did it on a Sabbath. They were more concerned about that than they were about the guy being healed. Almost like the unhealing. And the two questions in this passage are, are you the Christ, and are you the Son of God? 
And I'm just going to, I and the Father are one. I'm going to fast forward. They picked up stones to kill him. And then Jesus responds. I'll go to that. This is a good part. The Good News Commentary says this, in, in explaining the Father and I are one, it says this, Jesus and the Father are one because they do the same work and stand in the same relation to the sheep. This is not saying merely that Jesus imitates or obeys the Father. Their oneness is not an ethical oneness or unity of will. They actually do the same work. That is, the Father accomplishes his work in the world uniquely through Jesus, his Son. That's what it means that I and the Father are one. They do the same work. But what I'm trying to help you understand is a lot of times people will say, this is the Trinity. I and the Father are one. Is that really what it's teaching? Or is it teaching that they do the same work? There's this oneness. There's this unity. There's dynamic unity. There's no... I'm not questioning Jesus' divinity. Holy human, fully divine. I'm just saying there's a danger in Christian circles as Christianese. We all know that one. Or slapping a verse without really teaching what it's telling. Well, and he did say that he, that Jesus, um, the words that he was preaching came from him. So he was taught yeah. from God. Yeah, only what I have learned yeah, it's what what Father told me to bring to you. Yeah. So I'm right there. It's kind of he's not God. He's a son. He's he's a messenger. Yeah. Yeah. It, it says that he uh, he was from the beginning mm -hmm. with God, mm -hmm. and he was God. So at some point, uh, whether it was before the incarnation. Uh, if it was a Christophany, yeah. somewhere along the line, where did he say, I submit my will to you, Lord, I don't need to know everything, I don't need to have all the power that is rightfully mine. Was there a, a point where he did that? I can't say that anything's jumping in my mind. I'm, I'll kind of go back along the thread of what David was saying where you know, he does say before, and maybe you were saying this too, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and, and before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. And he was in their world, and the world was created by him and for him. You know, there, there's so much that does say Jesus was present with the Father at the foundation of creation. In fact, through him all things were created. Right. He was directly involved. All things were created by him and for him. But it says the same thing in the Holy Spirit. Well, the Spirit. It says you, uh, you hovered over the... Spirit of God was there hovering over the waters. Yeah. But it doesn't say all things were created by the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit. It says it says all things were created by Jesus and for Him. But God having knowledge of everything that has ever gone on, it's not like Jesus uh, came into the Father and said, Hey... Yeah, check out what I just made. Yeah. Well, is it kind of declarative that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? Right. Not, you know, we've used this before. I don't know which one of our studies, but it's not like they come together like yeah. with your Plato. 
thing that they became one sitting in one chair. They're separate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Not on his lap, not <laughs> absorbed into him, but yeah. there's the Father and the Son, and they're working Seven. together. Meld into one. And there's going to be this day where God the Father taps the Son on the shoulders, and he says, now is the time, and you're going back. You're, you're going to come again. And, and that's a, a great hope for the believers, for us to be ready. But it says in Revelations that, 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 that there will come a time where after everything happens, that Jesus will give all authority yeah. back to the Father. Yeah. There is a, I'm not saying there's not a lot to unpack in Scripture. <laughs> Amen. And I'm not saying that in seminary, the best answer to the Trinity question was, it's a mystery. What I am saying is this. A lot of times Christians have thrown around verses or parts of verses like a hefty cliché. And a lot of times Christians have used this Christianese language. Well, we don't know that one. Or in an arrogant way, this is the way it is. Where they're not even unpacking what the text and context is teaching. It, yeah. And, and they're building whole doctrines out of it to be quite... Yeah. Specific about it. If it fits what they if it fits their message. That'll make a denomination. I don't know why the, the, the TV has an aberration today and it's flipping out, but I'm going to go really quick on the last points and we're going to close because I'm. I just want to get this in John chapter five. Um, Jesus was doing the so that because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him, and Jesus said to them, "Realize this is way before the study." The text we have today. This happened earlier. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. The way the Jewish leaders viewed Jesus is you're claiming to make yourself equal with God. Did Jesus see himself being equal with the Father? Or did he see himself being sent by the Father? Subject to the Father. Serving the Father. Serving the Father. Yeah. And yet the Father is going to exalt the Son. This is not a competition. This is not a contest. This is not a conflict between the Father and the Son. This is a dynamic unity. And yet there is one true God. And the Father sends the Son... And they're going to send the Holy Spirit later on. Um, but then look at this path, the final note on this passage, John chapter 10, 10. John chapter 10, 20, 34. Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And if you call them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? See, Jesus right there could have said, I am God. Jesus could have said, I am God's son. But instead, he uses logic. And he uses their understanding of scripture and applies it in his context. And he's quoting from and referencing Psalm 82, verse 6. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 6, it says, I said, you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, the greater context is this, and listen to me 
as I read Psalm 82, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods, small g. And some like, you know, Kevin goes deep into the, the thought of divine counsel. But basically, Jesus says in John chapter 10, anybody of whom the word of God came, they would refer to as gods with a small g. And, and so Jesus is kind of using their argument against them. If you refer to anybody with a small g and you call them gods of whom the word of God came, I'm at least that. The word of God has come to me, but I am greater than that. But if you're okay calling them gods, why do you have a problem with me saying I am God's son? They're accusing him of calling himself God. And he's saying, fine, you want, to call, you want to say I call myself God? I didn't do it, but... If you're okay calling those with whom the word of God came, small g gods, Isaiah, uh, Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. And it's interesting that in Psalm 82, <coughs> verse 5, in the context of this, the psalmist writes, They know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. He could have pointed that and said, You Pharisees, you Sadducees, you hypocrites, don't you see how blind you are? He doesn't go there. He says, if you're okay calling them gods, what about, why do you have a problem with me saying I'm God's son? And so I, I, I want us just to understand, what do I want us to understand? There is a conclusion to this. We'll get into more of it next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time in your word, and I pray that our desire would be to unpack it, to study it, to understand it. Jesus was fully human and wholly divine. Holy human and fully divine. He, the fullness of deity in bodily form, there's no question of his divinity. But God, he, he's more than that. He's, our, he's our, our savior. He's our Lord. He's our way to the Father. He's our way to a relationship, God, with you. There's a personal nature to this, and there's a corporate, the body of Christ. So help us, Lord, to be diligent in studying the scripture, and Lord, help us to continue to unpack it and to understand it more fully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was Hezekiah.